Happy Father's Day. Okay, seriously. I said that for myself, so you guys are supposed to respond to make me feel good. Seriously, let's give some dads some love this morning. Come on. Come on. Some of my, uh, my, my buddies in church world, we always talk about, like, you know, what are you going to do on Mother's Day and Father's Day? And they're always like, you know, on Mother's Day, we usually, like, really, like, show a lot of love and kindness and, and let our moms know how well they nurtured us. And then comes Father's Day, and there's always this, like, dads do better. You know, it's just like, but honestly, dads, um, I, I want to say two things to encourage us. Because I think a lot of times we underplay our role and our influence in the families that God has given us. And so I want to encourage you with two things. One, let's be more present with our families. Let's be more present. You know, whatever that takes. Like if that means just getting home, and I know my wife's over there, she's probably like, I hope you follow through on what you're about to say. Like when you get home, like there's these little stinking devices you know what I'm talking about? Like somehow work follows us home. Just put those away to be more present. And secondly, um, this past, yesterday, there was a, a, a member of our church who passed away. His name was Vaughn Atkins. And he was a tremendous man of God. And the testimonies that came from his family, specifically his son, and just hearing about how he left a legacy of faith, how he took every opportunity to show the love of Jesus and to walk them through scriptures, just made me think, wow, we have an important role as dads to show Jesus off well to our children, to love our spouses well by loving Jesus well. And so dads, let's do that this year. Let's, let's let rise to that challenge and all that God has called us to. Um, besides that, good morning. Name is Brandon Ziski, lead pastor here. I'm a fellow dad. And so you can, you know, love on me later. Thank you. Again, my dad, actually, we talked last night on the phone and my dad's like, are you going to do a shout out to me like you did to your mom? I'm like, no, that's why I called you. It's like, it's like no. Okay, so about two years ago, almost two years ago, this coming August, um, I remember it was the first Sunday in August, my wife and I and the family came down, and the church was still in transition, still trying to do a, a senior pastor search, and, and I got the opportunity to preach here for the first time, and the church voted, and, and after I preached, the church for some reason still voted yes, and, and we came, and I remembered at that moment just looking at Carissa and just going, man, this is, this is happening, you know, it's just like the ball started to move really quickly. It hit us. We're moving to Austin, Texas. Nobody really knows in Minnesota that we're doing this besides the chairman of the board and maybe one or two other people at my former church. And so we were like, we got to get our house ready. We got to get it on the market. We got to do all these things. And then we got to start to look for a place to live. And so we flew home that following Monday and it, we landed in Minneapolis. And so we had a two-hour drive from Minneapolis to Winona. And about an hour into the drive, we get a phone call from someone within our neighborhood that knew someone who said, hey, we heard that you're moving. Would you be interested in selling your home? Can we come look at it? And we were just like, we had never listed this. Nobody knows. Like, okay. And they're like, can we see your house today? You know, and so before we came down to Texas, our house was a pit, man. I'm talking like things were everywhere. We scrambled just to get the kids packed. And so it wasn't neat and tidy. So they came they saw the house. The next day, they called back up. I kid you not. The next day, we never listed it. Never, they made a cash offer for the exact price we were going to list the house on. And so we were like, oh my goodness, things are moving fast. 
hey, we talked to some realtors here at Austin Oaks Church, and we flew down, and we started to house hunt, because we're like, okay, now we got to find a place to live, and, you know, we got a couple weeks before classes start for our kids, and so we got to do all these things, and what felt like just a whirlwind. I realized there were so many things that I did not get ready or be prepared for, and so after looking at about 50 different homes in our whirlwind tour, we found a house that we liked, and we were going to get ready to make an offer, and it dawned on me, oh, I need to get pre-approved. So I decided to get pre-approved. Got a hold of a bank. Lo and behold, they said, we can't approve you. And I was like, uh, why? Your credit score is horrible. And I was like, wait a second. No, it's not. Last I checked, the credit score was really high. It's impeccable. We paid our bills, all this kind of stuff. They're like, no, your credit score is really low. You know, I got to see the credit report, and lo and behold, I discovered something. There is this debt that's there from Macy's. And so a few Christmases ago, I opened up a Macy's credit card so I could buy my wife an amazing Christmas present because I was a sucker and opened up the card because they said, if you open up the card, you'll get X amount percent off, right? And so I did that. And being fiscally responsible, this is the truth, I paid it off the next month. Or so I thought. I looked. I owed one dollar. One dollar. That was it. Macy's put me into deferral on one dollar. And I had no idea that I was in debt until I needed to know. Like it was just so late. And, and I remember just going, I was so embarrassed because we're in this house and I'm frantically going, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I don't know how we're going to get a loan and all this kind of stuff. And it just made me absolutely panic. I had no idea that I was in such dire straits, such debt until it was too late. I share that because that is the reality spiritually. Every single one of us, if we know it or not, we are in spiritual debt because our lives were meant to live in obedience to God. Not like the tyrant God that some of us think that God just wants us to do this and do that and all these kind of things. No, no, no. It's a God who has these commands because they're for our good so that we can live life. We're in debt because we can't keep those commands. And I thought that $1 debt to Macy's was so pathetic. It was so small and so trivial, but the rules are rules. I can't change that. I was legally obligated to pay off that debt. And since I didn't, there was an effect that happened. My credit score took the hit. Folks, I know there's so many of us in this room that start to think like, well, my sin is so small. I, I've tipped the scales with my good deeds. I've done enough good things. So how can you say that I am in spiritual debt that's forever going to put me in default when it comes to my right standing with God? Folks, rules are rules. It's the way it is. We are in spiritual debt, a debt that we can't get out. There's nothing we can do to ever pay off that debt. And if we are not careful, we might discover that debt when it's too late. And there's nothing to be done. Now, here's where the illustration breaks down, because on earth, right, we can financially change things. We can sell a car, downgrade our home, add another job to pay off that debt. But folks, spiritually speaking, there's nothing we can do. Absolutely nothing. It is impossible to pay off this debt. The interest rate is astronomical, and we continue to pile on that debt. We stand guilty and condemned on that debt. It's a record that's standing against us, and what we need is for someone to show grace and mercy and to pay off that debt. So, 
in that house, at that moment, when I discovered that Macy's is being really rude. We don't know this couple that well from Austin Oaks Church, and I got on the phone with Macy's, and I, I, I wanted to. I wanted to not be Christian. You, you know what I'm saying? Like, there were some things I wanted to say to them. I was like, why are we even paying this off? But I was like, I got to be nice. I'll be, you know, I'll be show grace and truth and all this kind of stuff. And lo and behold, Macy's did forgive the dead. They chose mercy. And they did. They called the credit bureau immediately said, listen, this was our fault. We shouldn't have done that. And they sent us a letter. And we were able to take that letter and send it to the bank. And the bank was like, okay, you're pre-approved. We're like, awesome. Folks, there's someone who paid off your debt, and that person is Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about this morning. He paid off that debt for you before you even knew you were in debt, before you even knew that you had a debt and you needed to pay it off. He already paid it in full forever. And there's nothing we can do, absolutely nothing. Paul, in Colossians chapter 2, he's going to paint this beautiful scene for us. Because these folks in Colossae, this group of people who said yes to Jesus, they came to faith through grace. They saw and heard that Jesus came, he lived his life, and he died the death that we should have died. And it was by grace we were saved, right? Nothing they could do. Neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, like, you know, rich or poor, the level field is, the playing field is level all around the cross. And they saw that, and they were freed from their sin, all because of Jesus. But as we discovered in this letter, some people on the outside started to come in and say, hey, that's a good start. It's good to start with Jesus, but have you done this? Because you're not really a real Christian. You're not really with God or part of the people of God unless you have that and this. And it takes all certain different forms. Some of it was religious practices. Some of it was extra secret knowledge or spiritual experiences. In the text this morning, we're dealing specifically with a, a Jewish practice or a Jewish custom of circumcision. Okay? So that's the context that we're coming into. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Let's read this together. Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. In him. Now, if, you, if you're the... the the writing type, and you got a Bible, I would encourage you to circle that phrase. Just in him. It's so important. So important. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I don't want to get too caught up in this whole circumcision conversation, but we need to go there. And I'm not going to talk about like the why and the what of circumcision in the Old Testament, but what I want to do is talk about why this metaphor is still in play in the New Testament. It's a powerful metaphor that is being used, okay? And this issue was a major church issue in the early church days. Significant. Now, I'm not trying to be cute nor am I trying to be funny. I'm just trying to set the scene so we can try to put our shoes in the, uh, put ourselves in the shoes of those in, in Colossae, okay? We know there were Gentiles. 
And historically, Gentiles do not circumcise, right? That's just not part of their practice. We know that Jews have. It's been far, part of the very beginning of their faith was to be circumcised. It was something that God did. It was to show trust and vulnerability and mark them as unique people of God. But over the years, it's turned into other things. So now imagine, you're in the church in Colossae. You heard about grace. You heard about his goodness. You heard about his mercy. You heard that it has nothing to do with you, that you can't be religious enough, that you can't be good enough, that it's just his mercy and his grace. It's simply Jesus. You say yes, you receive the gift of life, and you're made alive. And then somewhere down the road, maybe a year or two, someone comes, looks rather dressed up, looks like they know a lot of churchy things, and they come and say, hey, have you been circumcised? To which you're like, no. Hey, have you, have you been baptized? Ha, have you been confirmed? Are you Catholic? Are you Lutheran? Are you Methodist? Are you Baptist? Are you this? Are you that? Do you sing this way? Do you look that way? Do you do this? Do you pray in the morning? Do you pray in the evening? Have you read your Bible every day? Do you journal for five hours each night? Like somebody comes and they say some things because they look religious and next thing you know, you're like, I don't know. Am I missing something? Should I be? And that's exactly what's happened. And like, I put myself in the shoes, and I'm just like, okay, because you want to follow Jesus. You love Jesus. Like, you gave your life to him. You're like, well, if, if they look right, and they, you know, they're, they're Jewish, so maybe they know more than me. Like, okay, maybe I should. Should I? I don't know. And I'm like, I'm just going, um, no. Like, if that was brought to me, honestly, here's my response. This is, I'm just telling you, right? Like, I'm not trying to be cute. I mean, just imagine that. Like, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. It's all by grace, but wait, what? Like, that would be really hard. And Paul knows that. And now these Jews, they don't know any better because this has been part of their culture and their custom for a really, really long time. But the problem is it turned into something that it was never meant to be. This external religious thing turned into for them the who's in and who's out. Who's right and who's wrong. And it was never meant to be about that. So when we look at this, this was a real issue in the church. And Paul, he lets people know that, hey, even in the Old Testament, it's always been about the heart. And so in Acts chapter 15, there was a circumcision debate that was happening because Gentiles were experiencing Jesus just like they were. And so if you look at Acts 15, I'm going to walk us through this. Some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised. Now, you can fill in the blank with any religious practice you want. Unless you sing hymns, unless you sing contemporary, unless you go to church at nine, unless you are baptized, unless you are confirmed, unless you have the Lord's communion this way, unless you are Catholic, unless, you can just fill in the blank. Church issue. Folks, I'm telling you, it's not, we're not exempt. This has been happening since the very beginning. They were teaching their brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Yes, it's Jesus, but... Look at this. And after Paul and Bar Barnabas had no small dissension and debate. That's a, that's, a, that's a really nice way, okay? And Barnabas had no small dissension. That's a really nice way of saying they had an argument. A pretty strong argument. 
with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed. They're like, we don't know what to do. So they went to Jerusalem. They went to Peter and to James, Jesus' stepbrother or half-brother. And the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And then they declared all that God was doing around them and with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Yes, sure, they could be saved, and yes, they could be experiencing this, but unless they, you fill in the blank. The apostles and the elders gathered together to consider this matter. A nice way of saying it was contentious. And after they had been much debate... Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by the, my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart, he bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us without circumcision. And he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why? Look at this. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples now neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? It's just simply Jesus. But Paul uses Old Testament, and every time we saw circumcision back then, it was never about the religious thing. It was always about the heart. Paul is saying that if you placed your faith, your life in Jesus, you are circumcised, not by external things, not by hands. You are not set apart for God, by what you do out here. It's by him and him alone. That is important. As believers, we are circumcised by the events of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So in other words, in other words, sorry, all who believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior have all, like, like, listen, you got to get this. You have all that you need because you have participated in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. You don't need anything else. And we have to understand this. As believers in Jesus, this is so important for us, we have participated in his death. And so therefore, death is what operates as circumcision. Whereas circumcision in the Old Testament was a cutting off or removal of a small piece of flesh, now Jesus' flesh was that circumcision. When he went to the cross, his flesh was theoretically very much just ripped right off of him. When he went to the cross, he was whipped and beaten and left for dead. You couldn't even recognize him after all of the torture. So when we talk about the circumcision in the New Testament, it's this vivid, bloody image of the body of Christ being ripped away. And he died. His death is our vicarious circumcision. When we place our life in his hands, folks, listen, the sinful nature, the old life is dead. And there's nothing more you can do. It's dead. When he died, you died. When he died, the ability for us to die to the power of sin and death died. 
absolutely important for us to understand. We can't do this. He does it. He died for us. And there's nothing that religion can do. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Before Jesus, we live in a body of sin. We live in a world of tension, of wanting to do good, but yet not being able to do it because we are oppressed. We are in in slavery to sin. And this is how Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. For I do not understand my own actions. Anyone? Fathers? I'm just kidding. Come on. Maybe that wasn't funny. I don't know. Why are you clapping? <laughs> for I do not understand my own actions. Okay? How many of you can relate to this? For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I want to be loving, but I end up fighting. I want to bless, I end up cursing. I want to forgive, but I get resentful. I want to stop drinking, but I just can't get away. I want to stop looking, but I just... You ever feel that? That tension? I mean, this is the body of death. This is the body of sin that is, that is real before Jesus died and we accept his death. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. In other words, that I'm sinful. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Amen? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And here's his conclusion. Wretched man that I am. Sinner, what can I I do? And then he asks a question, a loaded question. Who will deliver me from this body? of death. Thanks be to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. His death is our death, and there is where we are circumcised, where our flesh, this body of sin, is ripped off, and therefore his burial becomes our burial. And that's why baptism represents the burial, right? So when he was buried, his flesh was buried And so symbolically for us, our old nature, our sinful flesh is buried and it's left there because it's dead. It's not mostly dead. It is dead, dead, right? It is completely gone. Some of you got that. That was Princess Bride. Okay. It's gone. Here's the problem. So many of us as sons and daughters of God, we walk around as if this old life is still in full effect. We haven't buried it and left it be. We take it with us. Still allowing it to breathe and have control in our lives. The old life is a thing of the past. It is done. When you bury a body, when you go to the cemetery for the funeral and the casket goes down, you don't raise that casket back up and take it home with you. You leave it there. Our old life, our sinful disposition, our sinful ambitions, our sinful desires, our sinful alliances, all is buried and it stays buried 
Because not only is the burial our baptism in terms of the flesh being left behind, but it's also the birthplace for the new creation because Jesus conquered death in the grave and rose again. So therefore now, his life is the life that we live. It's because of him we're able to live as new creations in Christ. It's not because of what we've done. We are full. There's nothing more that we need. And this is how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, he says this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. First two words. We know. I pray you walk out of here with that confidence. We know. The body of sin. This old self, done. It's done. It has no power over me. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that there might be new life. For one has died... For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, which we have, we believe that we will also live with him. And we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are dead to sin. It's buried. But you are alive to Him. You don't need anything else. It's just simply Jesus. The old life is a thing of the past. The new has come. And I love what Paul does next. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And you, okay? I love the Bible for many, many reasons, but here's one. It's so easy to read right past these words like and you. All week as I've been reading this, those two words have been gripping me. I read that and you, I'm like, and me? (laughs) I'm like, it's like, yes, and you. Like he's speaking in the past tense to a church who believe in Jesus to remind them of the realities that they don't need anything else. But I also want to point out that if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, this is still your present circumstance. Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, you were dead in your sin. There was nothing you can do. You have a debt that you cannot pay off. And the uncircumcision of, fle- of your flesh, yes, you were uncircumcised. Your heart was uncircumcised. But now that you died with him, that body of flesh is cut away. You've been circumcised because of Jesus. God, this is so good, church. God made alive together with him. He did it. Why do we have the audacity to start to believe that somewhere along the road, now I have to get it together and I have to prove to God that I love him? Or I have to keep things right. I got to try to be right with God. Now it's on me. He's having forgiven us, let's say this word together, church, all. Let's try that again. All. All your sin. 
every sin you have committed in the past and every sin you've committed today, which is in the past, but right now, and in the future. I know a lot of us, we're good with the past. Like, he, he forgiven me of the past, but if I sin now, like, why would God forgive me again? Like, I keep sinning in the same thing. Like, why would he do it? So maybe I just need to show them. Like, I need to show God how sore I am. So I'm going to really read my Bible harder now. I'm going to prove to God that I'm sorry. So like, he can grant me his favor. I'm going to try to pray harder now because I really blew it. And if I show him that I'm serious about praying and going to church and giving more and serving more or whatever, maybe he will bless me again. I don't know. That's like starting out in grace and then believing that somewhere along the road, like we got to do extra things now to be right. Because the imagery that we get now with Paul, and he writes here in Colossians, is mind-boggling. Verse 14, he's forgiven us all of our sin by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, even if it's one dollar. Even if you think your sin against God is that small and insignificant, that debt is so great, you can't even imagine. He's taken that whole record of debt. He's taken that Macy's bill. He's canceling it. All of it. It has a legal demand on you because that's the way it is. He nailed it to the cross. All your sin, everything, all of your sin, he canceled it, not by taking it and just ripping it up and throwing it away, not by taking your debt and throwing it into garbage and lighting it on fire or forgetting that it exists. No, no, no. He set it aside. In other words, the imagery is simply this. He took our record of debt. Right now, imagine with me, all of your sin on this sheet. Everything you've done and everything you will do is on this sheet. This is the record of your debt that he took that day, 2,000 some years ago, on the cross. He took that and he didn't just go, that's all good. No, what he did was that it was nailed to the cross. And this is a powerful image. <laughs> because the image tells us it was nailed above his head. And when he was on the cross, he's saying, I'm paying for it. All of it. All of it. Let's have some fun, shall we? How many of you in this room are in debt? Feel free to raise your hand. Raise it proudly. If you have a mortgage, that's, we don't consider that good debt here in this question. If you owe money to anything, you're in debt. Now imagine, imagine that right now someone comes and pays off all of your debt. How would that feel? How, like, how would that feel? Everything. You're debt-free. Like, forever. 
Like, even if you, you, like, let's say your car broke down and you didn't have enough money in the bank and you had to use your credit card again and you knew that's like a $4,000 bill or whatever it is. And, and when that bill shows up, you open up the bill and you look at it and it says, paid. You're like, whoa. And let's just say something else happens and you have to use credit or debt again. And then all of a sudden the bill comes and you realize like, oh, paid. All of your future debt, Paid. How would that feel? Anybody be excited? Okay. First service didn't give me, they gave me a big response. I was just like, some of you are more happy about being financially free than you are spiritually free. Because this is how Jesus is with your sin debt. Everything, everything, it's done, done. You, you can't do anything to be forgiven. You can't, you, you can't do anything to go like, God, I'm really, really sorry. It's like, you receive the grace. And he even said, listen, you know, if there's anyone like who needs to confess sin, and 1 John 1, 5 says, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just. It cleanses of all unrighteousness. It's just simply Jesus. You don't need to do anything else. It's just him. And not only that, Paul, he goes on with another beautiful image. In verse 15, if that image wasn't enough, he goes on and goes, listen, he also behind the scenes disarmed the rulers and the authorities because he's above all rulers and authorities. He's the head of everything. And he put them to open shame. He publicly ridiculed them. When the powers and authorities thought they were putting Jesus to shame, there on the cross, he's like, Oh, the great reversal's happening. You have no idea what's going to happen next. Because when he conquered death, he put them all to shame. Now, the people in Colossae, they understood this metaphor. We don't because we don't do big military triumphal processions. Now, I did a history study, and I looked at one of the Roman generals. After they conquered Macedonia, they did a four-day triumphal procession where all the citizens of Rome gathered out. They built scaffolds and big scenes so they can all watch what was going to happen. On day one, on day one, 259, and here's just an image kind of give a, a mindset of this, 259 chariots were displayed. They came through like in a parade fashion. They had all of the statues from Macedonia, the pictures and the colossal images they took from Macedonia, and they paraded them through the city. Day two, wagons upon wagons upon wagons had all of the armor from the Macedonian army, and they, they artistically put them in the wagons so that they would get as much light as possible and make as much noise as possible to kind of sh uh, to make people feel the terror of the Roman army. Day three, Day three came the captives, the citizens who were enslaved. They were preceded by a 120 sacrificial official oxen. Their horns were gilded and their heads were adorned with ribbons and garlands. And then came the treasures. 300 wagons were carrying the silver and the gold and all the other vessels that were there. And then came the captured king's chariot from Macedonia, the crown and his armor. Then came the king's servants and they were weeping Hands outstretched to the Romans on his side saying, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. And then the king's family would come with his children. And then the other army. And then finally the king of Macedonia would come himself dressed in black, followed by an endless procession of prisoners. And then, and then finally came the Roman general, 
seated on his chariot, magnificently adorned, dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, holding a laurel branch in his right hand, and the army was behind him singing songs of triumph. This is the image that Paul is using of Jesus conquering death, the devil, and the demons, and all of the powers and authorities that held us in bondage. Folks, if you don't get excited about that, come on. Like, it's Jesus. These are powerful images because he's just like, you just need him. Keep it simply him. He's done it all for you. There's nothing that you can do. His love will never change. His faithfulness will never change. If you happen to incur debt later on, it's already forgiven. It is done. On that cross, he triumphed over everything. He triumphed over the guilt that some of you are hanging on to right now. Some of you are hanging on to some guilt, something in your past that it is just eating at you and you're not going to let it go and you're not going to let other people know. In fact, some of you are so convinced that that guilt, that act, that whatever it is, God won't forgive. God let it go. He's already forgiven you. All, all, all of it is nailed right there. All of your debt, right there. Some of you in this room need to stop trying to pay off your debt. Stop wasting your energy. You can't do it. It's done. You're debt-free. You're debt-free. No amount of praying, no amount of Bible reading, none of that is going to earn God's favor it's good because you want to build a relationship with him. Absolutely. You want to get to know him. Absolutely. But it's not going to change how he sees you. You're forgiven. Some of you are still allowing the old life to have too much control. You just haven't let it stay buried. You bring up the old habits. You bring up the old things. And you let it come with you. It's dead. It's buried. It's over. Now it's a choice. You are free to choose him. This morning, some of you just need to simply praise Jesus for what he's done. We are new in him. We are circumcised with him by his death, his burial, and his resurrection. All of our debt is paid, and all of our enemies are conquered. Maybe this morning is your morning to say yes to Jesus. If that's you this morning, I just encourage you to, to pray a simple prayer. Because I know, like, I, I thought this coming to church, that I thought it was about being churchy. You've got to dress in a certain way. You've got to go through certain things. You've got to know certain things. You've got to do enough good deeds. And maybe if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, God will like you. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll go to heaven. It has nothing to do with that. I discovered it. it was all about Jesus. That was attractive. Because like it says in Romans, like, I wanted to do good. And every time I tried to be good, it was futile. But he who knew no sin, Jesus, whose life was flawless and perfect, 
he, he lived the life I ought to live. He died the death that I should have died. And now because he's risen from the dead, now I can live that life because of him. This is your morning to be free. Every single one of you. Sons and daughters of God, this is your opportunity to walk in that freedom again. And if those of you who don't know Jesus, this is your opportunity to receive that freedom for the first time. To live for God. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so humbled that you paid the debt that we didn't even know existed. You you paid it all. You've canceled that record of debt that stood against us with its legal obligations. It had every right over us. We were obligated to fulfill the law, to do everything right and perfect, and we weren't able. But you were. So Father, I just pray that your Spirit would help us to live and to walk in the freedom that is ours in Jesus. And Father, I want to pray for those individuals in this room who might be wrestling with shame and guilt. We're just fighting that, not willing to let it go. Lord, I just pray that your love would just pour out on them, that they would see your goodness and your faithfulness all over. And Father, for those who maybe haven't lived for you or given their life to you, or maybe this is the morning and they just pray a prayer and receive your life of salvation. You could just say something like, Lord, I confess my sins to you. I recognize my debt. And I receive the grace that you extended, the mercy you extended to forgive me of all of my sins. I receive the offer of new life. And if anybody in this room has prayed that prayer, I would love at the end of the service for you to just to find me and talk with me. I'd love to pray with you. So, Father, as we walk out of here, I do ask, Lord, that you would set it in our hearts to live by your Spirit and to walk in the freedom that is ours in Jesus. In Christ's name.